I'm happy to be here again. People who listen to futureprimitive.org, you're familiar with Elizabeth Saturis because she has been our guest um, a couple of times before. So welcome Dr. Elizabeth Saturis. Uh, she is an American Greek evolution biologist, futurist, author, and speaker living on the island of Mallorca in Spain. With a postdoctorate at the American Museum of Natural History, she has taught at MIT and the University of Massachusetts. But I could say a lot more about Elizabeth. But uh, what I really want to do is ask you what you talked about on stage this morning. You opened the morning for us. The morning of Sunday at Bioneers by the Bay in Massachusetts, the East Coast Bioneers. It was really fun to be here. And um, I talked about how humanity has been a desert-making species for a really long time. If you stood on the moon and looked at Earth over time, you would see the expansion of deserts as our only visible legacy on the planet. And so I said, you know, while everybody's arguing about did we cause global warming or not, I'd say, hey, maybe Mother Earth said, darlings, you love making deserts? I'll make you some bigger ones, and flipped into a hot age instead of an ice age. I remember in the 1980s sitting around with Jim Lovelock, James Lovelock, the author of The Gaia Hypothesis and a number of books um, on that subject of a living Earth, and he was saying, you know, pray we go into an ice age, because if we don't, we'll probably tip the balance in the other direction into a hot age, and that may be harder on humans. We've survived a dozen ice ages, but we've never been through a hot age, because the last one was 70 million years ago. Yeah. But it's in Earth's re repertoire to uh, melt its poles, melt its glaciers, and do a hot age for a while. Um, the Earth is alive. It has fevers and in-between times and chills and, you know, all these different things happen. And it looks as though our overloading the atmosphere with greenhouse gases has, in fact, tipped the balance. And I think that the top scientists now would agree it's too late to change that. So what do we do as humans? So we talked about how do you face a hot age and is there any reason why we can't live through it? Not at all. Human cultures have been living well in deserts for thousands of years. They've figured out many ways to do it. We have new clean green technologies to help us do it. We still need to reduce carbon. We still need to get out of fossil fuels because you don't want to live on a hotter planet with dirty air. Why is that? <laughs> well, for obvious reasons. It makes us sick. We're not made to breathe air full of pollutants or to eat food full of pollutants or to drink water full of pollutants. We're made to be clean and green. We were originally clean and green. And as Vandana Shiva pointed out today, you know, it's actually very recent that we've polluted our whole food production system with nasty chemicals that came out of warfare. Uh, now we're making the wars on the little insects and we get worse and worse situations in agriculture. So, you know, she was good at going into details on that. 
And I talk more about uh, economics, say, you know, nature has always done economics if you consider that an economy is about transforming resources into useful products, distributing them, consuming them, and then in nature's case, recycling them in our unfortunately stupid ways, throwing them into landfills, but we're getting over that. And once we do, once we get that natural economies are fair, like in your body where all the cells are employed and no organ is exploiting other organs and everything is harmonious and in balance, except when you're ill and then the body has a remarkable capacity to heal itself. But each of us is walking around with an amazing economy made of 50 trillion cells that are each as complex as a large human city, 30,000 recycling centers per cell, 1,000 banks giving out free money to run the economy, all stuff we could be copying. So that's primarily what I talked about. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Saturis, um, you've been organizing some conferences lately. One of them was in Japan mm. last year, I think it was. Would you speak about these conferences, uh, these symposia, and the purpose of them? Right. I'm, I'm an evolution biologist, so I was trained in Western science, and back when I was trained half a century ago, they were still teaching philosophy of science as part of the curriculum. And in one of those courses, uh, we had to state what our fundamental assumptions about the universe and how it can be studied were, and then build theories on that foundation. So I was taught that in order to do science, you have to start with a set of cultural assumptions, because assumptions about what the universe is um, and what humans are within it vary in human cultures. So the assumptions of Western science came out of the European founders of Western science. They were men enamored of machinery, which was relatively new, especially like robots on church towers, blowing horns and beating drums and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so they kind of saw the whole of nature as machinery. Mm -hmm. And Descartes, in fact, said, God is the grand engineer inventing the machinery of nature. And so the assumptions about the universe were this is a non-living universe, purely material, and of course when they discovered energy, later Einstein showed us that matter and energy are really the same thing, that it's like going moving up and down a keyboard from lower frequencies to higher ones. And uh, so it was a non-living universe, and then they added in that it was running down by a law of entropy that they discovered. Actually, they discovered it in studies of steam engines, uh, closed systems, so it was always a bit unfair to apply it to the whole universe, which is apparently boundless. But they did. So. The assumptions were, this is a non-living universe, we can study it objectively. Somehow humans can stand apart from it and study it without interfering in it. So there's another assumption. And then there was the assumption that life comes out of this non-living universe and consciousness 
is a late emergent product of brains when they evolve. And I am trying to show that many scientists' fundamental assumptions of that kind have changed dramatically, that myself included, Many of us have gone over to the Vedic science, which is a much older one, and the assumptions in Vedic science are that the universe begins in a sea of cosmic consciousness, and that matter forms within that sea of consciousness, so that you never have to get consciousness out of non-consciousness, because it's there all along. And life is a natural evolution out of consciousness, so you don't have to get life out of non-life and intelligence out of non-intelligence because cosmic conscious consciousness is intelligent from the get-go. So all of nature becomes very interesting. It's alive, it's intelligent, it's conscious, and that makes you produce very different kinds of theories to build on that foundation. Now, unfortunately, most Western scientists are now trained without that philosophy of science, so they're not aware that they have these beliefs. And what was happening to me over time was I would give a lecture about the living universe, and then scientists would come up to me and say, oh, loved your poetic metaphors, but of course this isn't science, is it? Wink, wink. You know? And I learned how to say back to them, that's an interesting observation. Um, why do you say it's not scientific, what I'm saying? And they say, well, because you can't prove it. Mm. I say, prove what? And they say, you can't prove it's a living universe. I say, hmm, interesting observation again. And I said, how did you prove that this was a non-living universe? And then they sort of stand back for a minute, and their mouths open a little bit, and then they recover quickly and say, you don't have to. I say, why? And they say, because it's obvious. And I say, well, it's not obvious to all cultures in the world. Well, obviously that's because they're pre-scientific. Mm -hmm. So I said, and then they won't talk any further about it. So I said, I have to do something about this. <laughs> we need to get it out to the world that science is not all about facts. In fact, philosophy of science has long shown that science can't even produce truth, that it can only produce working hypotheses, right? Uh, regularities that uh, can always be violated, but, you know. Um, so I said, okay, let's have a foundation of science symposium. I found a wonderful sponsor in uh, Japan, a man with a business mission of feeding the children of Japan the highest quality diet for the lowest price, who set up huge organic farms and 300 restaurants called Donkey Surprise and feeds the kids uh, organic food at McDonald's prices mm -hmm. and has gotten very wealthy doing it because there are no middlemen and it all works out very well. And uh, so he asked me after publishing uh, a book or two of mine whether I had other projects I wanted to do, and this was the one that appealed to him. I told him I'd tried to get the president of India to do it, but hadn't had a response. And so he said, can we do it in Japan? So we held the first one in Hokkaido in the summer of 2008, and uh, we went th through what assumptions we had all been taught as Western scientists, and what assumptions we had changed and how we had changed and made the lists. And up until that moment, 
um, I, like the others, assumed that this was a paradigm shift, that Western science was evolving into these new foundational beliefs. And suddenly I realized that that was a conquest model and that we didn't need to replace Western science, that we could honor it and that we wanted to keep it going for the things it's really good at. If you see all of nature as mechanical, then you're good at producing mechanisms. And you know, you copy birds that fly and make airplanes and you have microscopes and telescopes and radar and spaceships and all those things that are very useful to all of us. But when Western science gets involved with life and pretends it can engineer the genome in some intelligent and productive and valuable way, um, then, and it hasn't proved itself and is turning out to do more damage than good, you need a science that can counter that. So let's let science do what it does well, Western science, and let's encourage other people to do sciences of a living universe and then to show why it is not cool to treat genomes as machinery and mess around with them. So um, I have, the second symposium was done this year in 2009 in August in Kuala Lumpur and it was primarily Islamic scientists and philosophers talking about what would their assumptions be if they revived their tradition of Arabic Islamic science. And of course, Arabic science contributed hugely to Western science, but now that's kind of swept under the rug. And I said, you know, you will not be credentialed by Western science. You need to stand up and claim your right to do Islamic science. And if your fundamental beliefs are Allah created a universe, that universe is a living universe, um, ethics are a necessary part of science, etc., good. State those assumptions publicly and then do theories, test them, be good scientists. Mm -hmm. So we could have a Vedic science based on cosmic consciousness as primary, an Islamic one about a living universe created by God, a Western science one that's an accidental material universe, and so build a consortium of sciences, leaving room for young people who maybe will be talking to aliens and getting a very different slant on the universe to do their science in the future. So just as we have a parliament of world religions, we could have a parliament of world sciences and be able to counter each other and have productive dialogues. So now I'm trying to raise funds to do a study of scientists' fundamental beliefs to show that they are not monolithic anymore and build the case for having multiple sciences. Thank you very, very much, Dr. Elizabeth Satouris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Joanna. All right.